Uh, Chris and his wife, Katrina, uh, are with us today, and your, your two kids, Savannah and Caleb, they're here too. Uh, they've been married for 16 years, been involved in ministry right now, obviously leading the congregation. I don't know, you guys you guys like them? Yeah. Some of you know this and some of you don't, uh, that Josh Ferguson, my brother, who was just helping lead worship this morning, he pastored in South Arizona Foursquare Church for a few years. So there's a Uh, you guys, uh, the couplers have been in South Ever for 15 months. Prior to that, Chris is involved at the Seattle Union Gospel Mission. He has a huge heart. Um, well, as, as we all should, but for the lost. And then 15 years at Eastside, Foursquare. Alright. Good. I, I said, Chris, kind of, what's your passion? He says, loving people in the margins. I love that. I know he gives leadership to that as well. People who feel overlooked and modeling the life and ministry of Jesus. And uh, I like this too. He said, I'm a reconciler by nature. Uh, and embracing the role of an ambassador of that. Because I'm getting to know you. That sounds about right. So good. So, so I said, hey Chris, I want you to come and I want you to share the word this morning. And he's, he's put a strong word on his heart about unity. So Chris, you come on up. Hope Church. Good morning, South Everett Foursquare. It's good to be together as the unified body of Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Wonderful to be here today. So, um, we're honored, we're humbled that you would accept us uh, into your midst right now. As Andrew said, we're a bit of a nomadic uh, congregation as uh, construction and restoration is happening at our home on the village at Casino Road. Right behind the Fred Meyer, maybe some of you know where that's at. Uh, we've been under construction. That construction went over for a few months, and God is never surprised by what's going on with us. Uh, he's never surprised. He always wants to teach us whatever season we find ourselves in, whatever we're going through. He has things for us to learn, wisdom for us to glean. And so as construction overruns uh, took place, we were supposed to be home by September 1st. We will now be home by October 27th. We think. But that's okay because the Lord has been teaching us something about what it means to be the church, to be people. So as your pastor shared, we've met in two different schools. We've met in school libraries. We met one weekend outside in the school courtyard. One weekend we gathered with the people of Mill Creek, Foursquare, similar to what we're doing this morning. And just with a couple weeks left in uh, our traveling around, we have gathered here with you today. And we're in the second week of a series of messages that we're doing out on the road called Little Church, Big Church, and the Church Beyond Sunday. And so last week was Little Church. We met in seven different homes all around the area. This weekend we are with you for Big Church, two congregations meeting together. And then next week we'll be with Everett Foursquare in the Wool District on Saturday night. And so it's been a lot of fun to be out there. And what we're learning in this process is that the church is the church wherever it is and wherever it goes. Gathered or scattered, we are a people designed to personify the hope, the life, 
in the love of Jesus to our neighbors and to our cities. Amen? Amen. That's the message of the church. So there's a picture here I'd like to show you of one of my favorite places. I mean, sometimes maybe you've been to places like this, enjoying places like this. And so uh, there was once a man who was stranded on a desert island just like this for many, many years. And one day while strolling along the beach, as he did most days, he saw a ship that was way, way out in the distance. And this had never happened before. And he was uh, excited about the thought of being rescued and uh, understandably the, the prospect of people coming. And so he gathered a bunch of wood as quickly as he could and he started a fire. He'd gotten really proficient at making fires. And the smoke began to pillow up and it pillowed up and lo and behold, it worked. The ship spotted the billowing smoke on the beach of this desert island. And so it sent a raft full of rescuers. And as the rescuers approached the beach, the man ran out there excited, hadn't seen people in years. He greeted them. And, and they came ashore. His rescuers asked him how he'd survived for so long on this desert island all by himself. And the man replied. He started talking about his exploits for food. He was bragging about the fine house that he made for himself. He said, in fact, you can see it right up there. It's that house up there on the hill. It's on the ridge, and he pointed in the direction of his home. And up there, the rescuers saw three different buildings, actually, on the ridge, and they inquired about the building next to the man's house. And the man replied, well, that's the church that I go to. I worship there on Sunday mornings. And they thought, well, that's wonderful. What's the third building? And awkwardly, the man replied, well, that's the church that I used to go to. (laughs) And we laugh awkwardly because we know... That unity is difficult within the body of Christ. It's difficult sometimes to feel like a unified church in the midst of so much disunity. And as we open, I want to pray Psalm 133 over us this morning. It'll be behind us. But let us pray this as a prayer, as a prophetic word over the church. Psalm 133. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. How good and pleasant it is when God's people come together in unity. And so, Lord, this morning we pray for that anointing of unity to come upon your body. To flow down and to bless. Lord, we pray for unity like a dew that would bring life to dry places. Father, be with us this morning. Thank you that we have the freedom to worship. Lord, thank you that we have the freedom to worship above ground in this nation, Lord. And let it not make us apathetic. But Lord, let it give us a deeper drive, a deeper passion to freely share your love with those that gather. And so thank you that two congregations gathered today as one can be together to worship you, to praise the name of Jesus. God, as we turn to your word, would you illumine, would you light up, would you show us the truth, the conviction, the grace, the mercy, the love that you would desire for us to walk out the doors with as your church today. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. 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 How good is it for the people of God to be gathered in unity? So as Pastor Andrew 
said we have been building a relationship, a friendship. We actually met at a shared Christmas party last December. Uh, we're part of the division of four square churches in South Snohomish County. And then, would you be surprised maybe to know that there's 17 four square congregations that meet probably within a 15 to 20 minute car ride from here. 17 different bodies gathering Together, it's fantastic, and so we've been getting to know each other. We've been building a friendship. Uh, in in May, we got together at, at, at Cracker Barrel in Nashville, Tennessee, and had breakfast and shared more of our stories and our lives. And since then, we've found time to get together, to be together, to unite the church, to see the work that God is doing all over the place. Uh, and that's exciting. So there are congregations today found all over. You'll see on the map behind us congregations. In Arlington, and in Bothell, and in Briar, and Darrington, and Edmonds, followers of Jesus this morning are gathering in Everett, in Goldbar, in Granite Falls, in Lake Stevens, and in Linwood. Faithful disciples today are worshiping together in Marysville, in Mill Creek, in Monroe, in Mount Lake Terrace, in Muckleteo, and communities of believers share the hope of Jesus all throughout Snohomish in Stanwood, in Sultan, in Woodway. And in the midst of all these little gatherings that are taking place all over our county today, there's something that we need to remember, and that's ultimately there is just one church. Amen. Made up of many, many different congregations, one church in Snohomish County, one great big church in the state of Washington, in this nation, and around the world. 2.5 billion who profess Jesus as the Son of God, crucified, buried, and risen again for the forgiveness of our sins and the reconciled relationship that we can have with our Heavenly Father. That's what's taking place around the world, not just on Sundays, but all week long. So together we've come together this morning to worship a triune God. One God in three persons who is the author of perfect, unified, and harmonious relationship. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Amen. Unified, harmonious relationship. It's motivated by the perfect love that God has for us. He created us in His image to share in the love that always existed within the three persons of the Godhead. Father, Son, and Spirit. God did not create because He was desperately lonely. God created because He deeply loved to share a perfect relationship that He had with us. Unity. What comes to mind when we think about the word unity this morning? I think in pictures. And so here's a picture. Unity to me sometimes seems a little bit uncommon. Like a house upside down. Like, this doesn't quite match exactly what I normally see. And when I see it, I stop and look at it, because that doesn't quite seem right. But there it is. When I think of unity, I think of things that are hard. Does unity ever feel like trying to climb up something like this? And the longer you try, the more you engage, the more tired we get. And the challenges associated with unity are risky. If we take a wrong step, it can, it can go differently for us than we would like it to go. And finally, I think about unity, and I think about unity being really, really elusive. 
Like, if you were to find unity, you might just panic a little bit. Like, I'm so unused to this. I've heard of this, but I've never actually seen it. Unity can be uncommon. It can be hard. It can be elusive. And yet, here we are. Twelve years ago, a tenacious pursuit of greater unity within the body of Christ was ignited in me. When I began to see the church bigger than just the corner of 100th and 145th in Bothell, where the people of Eastside Foursquare Church would gather on a campus and started venturing out into the neighborhood and finding people who believed in Jesus from other denominations, finding people who didn't believe in Jesus but still bore the image of God and realized there's so much more that God wants to do outside of my little box that I want to keep them in because I'm kind of a control freak. If I can keep God in my building, if I can keep Him in a box, if I can keep Him in a book, but Jesus Himself says, I am the Word of God. I am the living Word. All of the Word of God was in the person who, Jesus, who went outside of buildings and walked around with grace and truth to see relationships restored and unified. Amen? Amen. So, this pursuit was was just kind of brought to life in me. And I kind of thought, at that point in time, you know, if I work hard enough, if, if I strong-arm disunity enough, I can bring unity back. <laughs> and 12 years has passed. And as I've shared messages like this before, I'm like, Lord, I need a fresh outpouring of your spirit, a fresh anointing of your understanding, because things seem less unified than ever. The harder I've tried to reach it, the more elusive it has become for me. And in the midst of a genuine effort, we find that disunity in the body has reached critical mass. And so the goal for us, the pathway forward to the reconciliation that Jesus calls us to, the pathway forward in that is birth in prayer. It's birthed in the prayer that Jesus modeled for us in John 17. Go ahead and open your Bibles. We're going to be there in just a minute. John 17, verses 20 through 26. We're going to look at some context going back to Luke 22 and John 13 leading up to that. Prayer, a seeking of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is the only thing that's going to bring us back together because my strength is insufficient. My best understanding is insufficient. It doesn't mean that we don't grapple with the issues. And we might feel unified until we start saying certain things, not only between those who call on the name of the Lord and those who don't, but even within the body of Christ. When we say things like immigration and Second Amendment rights, and the sanctity of life, and care for the, the poor, and racial inequity, and the LGBTQ community, mass incarceration, and all sorts of different elements of the social fabric that make us up, but also seem to divide us now more than ever. As we say those things, some of our heart rates go up a little bit. And then if we meet somebody who doesn't align the way that we do with some of the things that we think about, we're not sure what to do with them. Disunity. But Jesus 
isn't surprised. We can go back to the never failing, inerrant word of God to know that God is not surprised by the things that we grapple with today. Amen? That's good news, but it should drive us back to the word. To find again what Jesus does in situations like this. He isn't surprised. Disunity is why he came. We were disunified with the Father and he came to bring reconciliation to us. And sometimes I grieve as a reconciler, as someone who wants to see people come together. I'm grieved when our our cavernous space is between us and we can't seem to find a way to move forward together. That grieves me. And when I'm learning more, instead of going out and doing more and doing more, that my grief turns to humility and humility turns me back to prayer and an outcry for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit because only God can unify us in the midst of disunity. Amen? Amen. Jesus set the example for us. All four gospel accounts give us different pictures of different parts of the scriptures. When you bring them together, you weave them together and you see the full story. Four different gospels brought together, unified, to see the whole picture. And the believers were gathering together. The passage of scripture that we're going to share this morning finds itself in the context of a dinner. The last dinner that Jesus would have with his disciples before going to the cross to die for our sins. It was a dinner party. Dinner parties are jovial experiences, except when they're not. You ever been to somebody's house and it's awkward at dinner time? Somebody brings up a wrong topic. Why they say at Thanksgiving, don't talk about religion or politics at Thanksgiving, because it's going to make your meal awkward. Right? The world knows it. Don't bring those topics up. Just ignore them. Just push them under and then talk about each other in the car on the way home. (laughs) Nervous laughter. (laughs) He's having a dinner party. And guess what? It was awkward. Because the Gospel of Luke tells us... i got to go back to Luke. Gospel of Luke tells us in chapter 22, verse 24, it says, A dispute also arose among them as to which one of them was to be considered the greatest. Jesus said to them, The king of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Don't be like what you see out there, essentially, is what he's saying. In verse 26, he says, Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. And the dinner party was in the midst of a dispute over who was the greatest. Pressure was mounting. A lot of times when pressure mounts and fear overcomes, we start grappling about stuff that doesn't matter. But the disciples were in this deep, deep argument about who was the greatest. We find then in the Gospel of John in 13, that here are these gathered, these believers, these disciples gathered for dinner. And what we know, just from studying more, is that there was someone missing from that dinner party, and the person who was missing from the dinner party was the servant who would sit at the front door of the house and would wash the feet of everyone who came in. It was a necessary task because the roads weren't paved and the shoes weren't closed. 
So open-toed sandals walking around in the dirty streets of Jerusalem. Especially if it rained, feet were dirty. And the disciples are having this argument about who's the best, so nobody assumes the position of the servant. Nobody takes the lower seat. And so Jesus speaks to a situation, he speaks to a bunch of dirty feet in a room, because no one will submit and wash the feet of their brother. And so what does Jesus do? He models for his people, for his disciples, exactly what it looks like to be a part of the work of the kingdom. The work of the kingdom says, submit, even when you're afraid, and take the lower seat. Because he who takes the lower seat will be in the kingdom with the king. But this is the way it goes. If you do not follow this way, you have no part of my kingdom. Is what Jesus said to Peter when Peter was afraid to let Jesus wash his feet. Servitude. Jesus set an example of unity by modeling unity through his actions. He was in a divided room. And so he got down and he served the other. By taking on the role of a servant, Jesus eviscerated the spirit of pride in the room by washing the feet of his brothers. Pride. Jesus eviscerated pride by taking the role of a servant. He then began to teach on everything that the disciples would need to know to be the body of Christ. So in chapters 14 through 17, just a a quick synopsis, we'll put this up there for those who work visually through words. We put pictures up there. We can get that next statement. Jesus teaches on the exclusive kingdom that all were invited to enter. This is what he does in John 14 through 16 and into 17. He promises his Holy Spirit to all believers. No, that's fine. He welcomes his children into abiding rest and promises positive, lasting outcomes. Gotta go back. (laughs) From our efforts, if we would remain in him. He said, if you remain in me, things will go well. Fruit that will last will come. Next. In regards to unity, he warns of a warring world that would seek to rip unity apart limb from limb. Anyone feel like they're living in that world? Before entering into his longest prayer recorded, Jesus reassured his followers that their grief would turn to joy because although they lived in a world full of trouble, through his death and resurrection, he would overcome the world. And he praised this. He teaches this. And then he prays for the future believers right there in the presence of those he was with. The Lord's prayer for us, his future believers, is the focus of our text this morning again. John 17, verses 20 through 26. Jesus prays for all believers. My prayer is not for them alone, his disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Even the ones in South Eret and the ones in Snohomish. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you and me, 
so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So if we're going to understand one thing this morning, it's that there's one church, one local church, there's one global church, there's one church of the past, the present, and the future. As Jesus brought it together in prayer at this awkward dinner that was getting less awkward by the moment. Because the one who created us submitted. When we understand these things about one church, we arrive and the central revelation that is through prayer, we see that it was Jesus' final will and testament. Y'all got a will? You write some stuff down? You want it to go a certain way after you're not here anymore? Jesus is praying his last will in testament. This is it. I think it's incredible sometimes to ask why about the scriptures. So I started asking why. Why? I mean, you can pray about so many things, Jesus. And you prayed about unity in the church. Why unity in the church? Why is this your prayer in the final hours? And I think it, it lays out here for us to understand that unity helps us understand what love is and whom it is that we find love in. As we find unity, the world will know, this is in 22 and 23 paraphrased, the world will know the love of God, the world will know that the Son was sent by the Father, and that the Father loved the world. And that will happen once there's unity in the body. Amen? What a beautiful thing to show the world. A unified, resolute church. It's the magnifying glass by which the world sees the clearest picture of the God who created them. But inversely, disunity presents a very distorted image of who God is. Think about this, right? If unity presents the clearest picture of the Father... Then what does disunity do? It's a broken image. And so before looking at exactly why unity matters so much, we want to look at three things that cause disunity in the church. Three specific signs and consequences of a divided church. It gives us motivation to be united. Number one, the church is divided when we view the church as a building. I grew up under a pastor named Jerry Cook. Anyone heard of Jerry Cook? Yeah. He's been here. He's been everywhere. Jerry goes everywhere. He did. He passed a few years ago from cancer. But I was 21, 22, 23 at Eastside Forest Park. I just got to sit under Jerry Cook. And he would just, the church is not building, the church is not building. And the church is not building, the church is people, empowered by the Holy Spirit. It took a long time. One of the last messages I heard before Jerry passed was more than a decade after I heard him speak the first time. And I'm like, Okay, I think I'm wrapping my mind around this finally. This idea about the church is people, not a building. If the church is merely a place, then the church is static. It's stuck here. It can't go anywhere but off this piece of property on Bickford Avenue. And how can we get together as congregations if we're bound to our buildings? Seven and a half miles from here, there's a building where South Everett Foursquare meets sometimes. <laughs> but today we're free to be here because the church is people. Amen. We are one gathered people. I was thinking about it on the way over here this morning. What would happen? Maybe I'll suggest this to our divisional superintendent that maybe one Sunday 
We get all 17 congregations together, like Angel of the Winds Arena or something like that. And maybe bring some people from the Assemblies of God Church and the Presbyterian Church and the non-denominational church. And we really start to see how many faithful believers there are gathered together. Different cultures, different people in different places. The church is not stuck in its building. Because if it is, look out. The church has seen its final days if we're stuck in a building. Jesus' prayer to the Father was answered on the day of Pentecost. It began to be answered. May the church be unified. Because the early church, if you look to the book of Acts, was not defined by a campus. It was defined by a group of people who called on the name of the Lord Jesus. That's what defined the church. Secondly, the church is divided when we believe that there is more than one church. There are more than 400 congregations that call on the name of the Lord Jesus right here in Snohomish County. But there's just one church. And I wonder why the world thinks that we're divided. I would humbly submit that they think we're divided because we've acted divided. How can the world know the love of the Father if we disagree about the smallest things or decide that we like coffee better one place or a website better somewhere else or, well, I don't like them because of this or that. They're going to think we're divided because sometimes we act divided because leaning into spaces that are different is scary. But Jesus is called to do it and He's given us the power of the Holy Spirit. You don't think it was a little bit nuts on the morning of Pentecost at 9 a.m. when all these people who weren't supposed to speak a bunch of languages, started speaking the language of of every Jew that came from every nation to gather for the feast. That was different. That was stretching. It's the same God today. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the same Spirit that was released at Pentecost is the same Spirit that unifies us here this morning. Amen? Third, the church is divided when we are consumed with the minors. To such a degree that we lose sight of the majors. There's a lot to fight about. We've talked about it a little bit this morning. All the things that we can fight about and do fight about on social media. And during pillow talk and at the water cooler in the office place. There's a lot of reasons why we divide ourselves. But intimacy with Jesus brings humility. Intimacy with Jesus. I thought I could strong arm disunity back into alignment. But it turns out we need the presence of God to do it for us. Intimacy with Jesus leads to humility. And humility is ridiculously uncomfortable. Ridiculously uncomfortable. I want to show you a video this morning, a short video clip. Maybe many of you have seen it this week. It's been viewed almost a million times on YouTube. A week ago this video didn't even exist because the situation didn't exist. And this clip may arise all kinds of questions for us this morning. It might make us a little bit uncomfortable. I'm okay with that. But I want us to focus not on the content of the video, but on the practice of the people together in the midst of disagreement to move forward. And we'll talk about it a little bit more. Check this out.
this video. This is Ellen DeGeneres. And if I'm just blatantly honest with you this morning, and I, I prefer blatant honesty, Ellen's something I hold a grudge against. I have for a while. Because without getting to know her or her background, understanding where she comes from, and there's important things that Ellen and I disagree about, but I didn't take the time to get to know the person or hear their heart on it ever. I just would see that person and think, they push an agenda that, that bugs me. And so I just dismiss them, right? I just dismiss them. I get frustrated with them. I put them in a them category as opposed to an us. And maybe not an us as in, I don't know where she stands with Jesus. I haven't asked her. I haven't Googled it to find out. But I know that there's a thing that keeps her and me apart. And it's disunity over important issues, not issues that are not important. But as an openly gay Hollywood celebrity, she's someone I think I can dismiss that because I don't have to love that person. So last week, Ellen goes to a football game, a Dallas Cowboy football game. She was invited by the Jones family, Jerry Jones and his family, that owns the Dallas Cowboys, and she got to sit in the suite and watch the Sunday night football game between the Dallas Cowboys and the Green Bay Packers last week. She was invited. She admittedly said that I was there as a Packers fan, but I got invited, so I had to hide my cheese head. And, my, and she said I had to hide that in my wife's purse, and everyone laughed. This was Monday. She's talking about that because, as does happen with sporting events that are televised nationally, sometimes a camera pans and catches people together. Well, the camera panned on Sunday night and caught Ellen DeGeneres sitting with former President George W. Bush immediately next to each other at this football game. And Twitter takes off for the same reasons that my broken self took off inside. I think we can do better in our social media responses, but what was on social media was in my heart. And so Twitter, social media, everything, it takes off and says, you two people cannot be together next to each other because you're a liberal, lesbian Hollywood superstar, and you're a very conservative Republican president. So you people should not be together. And so hate and vitriol is poured out for hours and hours and hours until Ellen has a chance to go on the air on Monday morning and address it in a really funny way. And she's taking her own video, and she goes, the people that the Joneses meet with, they're, they're not just fancy people, they're like fancy, fancy people. And so she, she turns and she gets a picture of her wife talking to Mrs. Jones and then pans back around and then there's George W. Bush, like in her video. And she said, you know what, George W. Bush and I are friends. We disagree on really, really essential doctrine and ideas and philosophies about the world. And it's not best to just say, well, everything's the same. Your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. That's not unity. That's just blah. That's not even conflict. That's saying we're so afraid of conflict that we're just going to say that everyone's beliefs are exactly the same and whatever works for you works for you. The gospel says something different than that. Ultimately, Ellen says, I have friends with lots of people that are not like me on important issues. But the thing that we have to do before we get any closer to unity is be kind to one another. And I watched this video on Monday night and this weight lifted off of me. Not because we've solved the issue on a biblical stance on marriage, because we haven't, we haven't solved that yet. I stand as one who holds to a traditional view of marriage, 
that believes in marriage as a relationship between one man and one woman. But I got lots of friends that don't feel that way. So I can either figure out how to be friends in different areas or I can hate them. But what I don't have to do is either choose accepting the behavior or hating the person. Because Jerry Cook would say that acceptance is not always equated to agreement. This gets us moving in the right direction. It doesn't get us all the way there. I'd encourage you to go take a look at this video clip when you get home. Just Ellen and George Bush, it'll pop right up. It's not the end game for the kind of unity that Jesus is seeking in John 17. It's not there yet, but I would suggest it's a step that's critical if we're going to find unity at some point, in some place. Amen? Amen. The minors matter, but the majors anoint the minors. The minors matter. The small things matter. But it's the majors that provide the anointing so that we can get together about the minors without beating each other up. So essential for the body of Christ to model unity because once we model unity over things that really matter, the things that really matter, Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the one true Son of God who was sent to earth, who died on a cross, was buried in a grave, ascended into heaven so the Holy Spirit could pour out God's grace on anyone who would call on the name of the Lord, and anyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Amen. That's the majors. That's the majors. I would say that it's pretty major for us to understand that the church's people see people, not buildings. See, people, not numbers, not the number of cars and parking lots, or how fancy a bulletin is. See, people, the church is people. Every person we meet today bears the image of Jesus. They may not be a child of God yet because the Word says that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord walks in that inheritance. But everybody bears the image of God. That's the unified church. So what's so compelling about it? Unity, as we discussed, is hard. Unity is really hard. It's the ideal. But it's definitely not the normative. We've been created for unity with God and with each other from Genesis chapter 1. And there was beauty and there was creation and there was rest and there was goodness and then there was disunity pretty quick. Unity was the first thing that we had and it was one of the first things that slipped through our grasp. We've been trying to get it back ever since. This idea of being unified together as a body. Intimacy with Jesus leads to humility. Humility leads to unity. And we need His help. We need His help. I want to model the body of Christ. Let's be in some very uncomfortable conversations sometimes, but I'm pressing into those things. Pressing in with everything that I got. So Jesus prayed for unity, and we will pray for unity. And if I ever get bored with prayer, I'll confess that to you, I get bored praying sometimes. Hope, that, hope that's okay. Hope that maybe we're unified in that sometimes. When I get bored in prayer, I find a greater motivation. I find the things that I can't fix in my own strength, in my own strategic thinking. And I say, God, there's stuff we've got to be praying about. There's lives on the line. There's people that are hurting. And I need to figure out a way to be grace and truth at once. And I can't do that without the power of the Holy Spirit. It starts with us. 
I spent on time, time on staff at Seattle's Union Gospel Mission in 2017, but I've been involved down there in Pioneer Square with men in the addiction recovery programs for about a decade. I've learned a lot about addiction, a lot about recovery, enough to know that it's hard because it makes us look at ourselves. Brokenness and addiction and fractured relationship, it's easy because you can just point at somebody else. Recovery says, I'm going to point at me. I'm going to look at the speck, not in my neighbor's eye, but the log that's in mine. And that's hard. We want to run from those things. And so when disunity would arise at the mission with men who were courageously seeking recovery from drugs and alcohol and all sorts of different kinds of dysfunction, would get upset about how things were going. They said, well, that's it. I'm going to Portland Gospel Mission, or I'm going to Spokane Union Gospel Mission, or I'm going to the Everett Mission. I said, well, the only problem with you going to that mission, and I said, what's that? I said, you're going with you. (laughs) I go with me everywhere I go. And so I can either choose to clean up this side of the mess and trust God for the other side, or I can keep pointing and running and pointing and running, or I can dig into relationship with people who are very different than me and model the love of Christ, knowing that His work is transformation and my work is unconditional love. Amen? Amen. Amen. That's it. We laugh because a guy stuck alone on an island left his church to build a new one. Lord Jesus, this morning, we humble ourselves. We come before you, and God, I can can think of more disunified spaces right now than I I care to admit. God, it will always be there because we're broken. It's It's not going to be the way that we desire it to be, Lord, until you come again. But in the time being, Lord, help us humble ourselves. Lord, give us a depth a desire for intimacy with you that leads to humility. Lord, you are worthy of our praise. God, we confess, we come before you this morning and just publicly confess, corporately confess places where pride has crept in, where we've decided we don't want to have crucial conversations. Lord, would you help us humble ourselves to go to those we're in broken relationship with and just say, for whatever I did in this, God, help me repent ask for forgiveness and say, God, do something new in us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be the unified body more and more. Give us wisdom and discernment to be in relationship with those who we see as different than us. As we humble ourselves, may your gospel be proven true toward every corner of the earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, Amen. Amen. Thank you, church. You've been listening to a podcast from South Everett Foursquare Church. For more information about us, please visit us online at www.southeverett.org.